0: From the Financial Times in London, I'm Matthew Vincent and this is FT Investigations. There are two ways of looking at Britain's rail privatisation story. If you focus on usage, it looks like a success, not a decades of decline. Britain's trains are busier than at any time since the First World War and passenger numbers have almost tripled over the past 30 years. But look at the cost and level of passenger satisfaction, and the picture is not quite so rosy. Railfares for many commuters have been pushed to their limits, and taxpayers are still heavily subsidising the services. So deep is the dissatisfaction on one service, the poorly performing southern train service between London and Brighton, that long-suffering customers have resorted to musical protests. And here's a flavor of one of those. Southern fail. Why can't I depend on you? You're always late. Or cancelled due to shortage of crew. Southern fail. Please tell me what to do if I want to go to London. So what's gone wrong? With me to discuss the rail privatisation story are Jonathan Ford and Jill Plimmer, who have written a series of articles for the FT investigating Britain's privatisation model. And we're also joined by John Stittle of Essex Business School, whose research has focused on privatisation of the UK railway industry, and by Robert Wright, former FT transport correspondent. Let's start then by looking at how British Rail, as it was, Was broken up. Jonathan, tell us how rail privatisation first came about.
1: Rail privatisation came about in the early 1990s, and it was one of the follow on privatisations, if you like, after the obvious utilities and commercial businesses that the government owned had been sold. But there was a big problem with the rail industry, which was it was heavily loss making. And the government had a desire to introduce competition, to introduce private capital into the industry. And the thinking was that this would encourage a renovation of a railway network, which had become basically very run down because of a slowdown in investment during the 70s and 80s problem it faced was that it needed to work its way around transferring the business into the private sector and providing it with a subsidy without just creating something which was a complete orphan of the state. So what they did was they split it up. They adopted a model which was a bit similar in their minds to the airline industry. So in the place of airports, which were the infrastructure bit, you had what was then called rail track, which would own the network instead of the airlines, you had the train operating companies, which would run the services. And just like the airline industry, you had leasing companies to provide the rolling stock on which these services would be provided. And the importance of that was that the infrastructure was always going to have to remain a single monopoly. But by bringing in franchises to run the rail services, I think there was a a desire to create competition and to spark innovation, new ideas, new services. And also the idea was that that would constrain the amount of subsidy that was required because effectively the franchises would have to bid. The way they would compete for these services would be to compete for the level of subsidy that was supported. So that was really the plan. Jill, if I can just turn to you, we've heard the plan... How's the
0: reality been? Would you say that service levels have improved or declined?
2: I think it's hard to argue that privatisation has delivered a good system. I travel every day on the train so I know what a lottery it is for my train to actually turn up on time and the delays are long. And then more factually, the average age of the rolling stock is 28 years old, a survey by which at the end of last year found that half-hour delays afflicted 7 million journeys. And the fares are expensive, the most expensive in Europe, even though we pay more for our tickets.
0: So service not great, value for money not necessarily the best. But what about the original aims of privatisation, as Jonathan's just been setting out, to create a market in which there is competition. Has that succeeded in any way in bringing benefits to the public?
2: I think one issue that we've got now is that most of the rail system has already been renationalised, so we have a hybrid system where we seem to have got the worst of both worlds. Network Rail, the infrastructure operator, which is responsible for maintaining and improving the tracks and improving stations, such as at London Bridge, is already in state hands, run at arm's length from the government and paid for largely by taxpayers. The rolling stock has been in the hands of three main companies since privatisation, and they act as sort of middlemen between the government and the train operators. So the fact that they are just in the hands of three companies shows there's not much competition there either. And the train operators, which essentially run monopoly services on lines where there is no competition, have declined in numbers, so there's fewer competitors And they've increasingly had their franchise extended without competition, so there's less competition there as well. A large number of these operators are now run by other state-owned rail services. Deutsche Bahn runs services, as does Abelio, which is run by the Dutch. So it's pretty hard to argue that there's real competition.
0: What fans of privatisation do argue, however, is that The rise in passenger numbers is undeniable, and this is the overall overarching argument that people should look at. The other side of that, though, is whether or not passenger numbers would have increased without a sell-off. What's your view on that?
2: I mean, I'm always intrigued that this is the one argument that the train operators come back to, and those in favour of privatisation argue that, you know, passengers' numbers have increased because of privatisation. And in a way, it doesn't make much difference. may maybe a correlation with privatisation, but that's not quite the same as causation. And what we do know is that, the rail network was starved of funding before privatisation because the government was keen to push people onto the motorways. And after that, a lot of the growth on passenger numbers is on routes in and out of London. And that's been driven by a whole range of factors, such as the rise in fuel duties, congestion on the roads, higher numbers of people in higher education, and the move out of the inner city because of high house prices.
0: Robert, if I can bring you in here, what's your view on this? Could the growth in passenger numbers that we've seen have happened
3: without privatisation, in your view? The simple answer is, I suppose, that it didn't happen without privatisation, and that's perhaps suggestive. If one looks a bit further back in history, what used to happen when British Rail was owned by the government directly? For a long period in the 1980s, the Conservative government wanted to avoid spending extra money on the railways, and when passenger numbers grew they jacked up the fares to get rid of some of that custom. My view about what I think has succeeded about privatisation, and one has to accept that a lot of things definitely haven't, but what I think has succeeded about privatisation is it put a very clear framework in place. The government had obligations to pay money for various things, subsidies in some cases, to fund the infrastructure provider. And that meant that you couldn't have the kind of break that you had before on numbers. The government was obliged contractually to fund a certain amount of growth. And I think the private sector had an interest in getting extra traffic. But we shouldn't forget that actually a big part of this is the public sector was obliged to stump up for this in a way that it wasn't before privatisation.
0: Jill how does the level of subsidy compare with pre privatization days
3: the
2: subsidy has increased from 2.3 billion in 1996 to 4.2 billion in real terms in 2016 17 and that's despite a deliberate policy to shift the cost onto passengers so not only are taxpayers paying more but passengers are also paying more through higher ticket prices
0: Robert a number of people are now in favour of some form of renationalisation, do you think it could really help bring down the cost for the government and indeed for passengers?
3: The thing that strikes me about the costs of the railways at the moment is that the bit that I think is really driving the cost overruns is the bit that's nationalised, network rail. The private train operators are not perfectly efficient, obviously, but I don't think they're really driving the cost problem. I think that a lot of what's driven the cost in the railways is the stop-start cycle of investment. We saw a huge amount of expertise lost when RailTrack was set up. A lot of people left. People forgot how to do things. At the moment, the big thing we've seen is the electrification is costing a huge amount more than we expected. Well, that's not necessarily terribly surprising. In the 1980s, British Rail had a rolling programme of electrification with people who were absolute experts at doing that, who went from place to place, they had the equipment, they knew how to electrify a railway. People don't know how to electrify a railway anymore. And lo and behold, it turns out it cost more than people expected. So... I think the thing that we need to do is get used to spending money on the railways again, and costs will come down when people learn how to do these things again.
0: John, uh, critics of privatisation talk about the fragmented nature of the ownership structure and how this is a problem. What are your thoughts?
4: Well, I would say that British Rail was a vertically integrated business. It did everything from actually making the carriages and trains to the track to the engineering. Every conceivable aspect of the industry was in-house with one board of directors. It was structured well. It had clear objectives. It knew where it wanted to go. The only problem was the politicians. It was just a managed decline. No one thought there was going to be any future whatsoever. In fact, some people might even remember the Serple report came out in the early 1980s. It proposed actually chopping large chunks of the network off. They thought there was going to be no future for them at all. Luckily, that was dropped for political reasons. And when privatisation did come along, and it was on the cards, even the British Railways Board directors didn't want the industry privatised like it has been. They were even suggesting, if it had to be privatised, if, then perhaps a model along the line of British Gas or British Telecom. So British Railways Board, PLC, or just British Rail, PLC, let's preserve the integrity, the integrated aspects of the industry. But what's really happened now is the political will was such. It was going to be sold off. It didn't really matter in the end how it was going to be sold off. Let's try to bring about as much competition
3: as we possibly can. And this is the disjointed, fragmented industry we have today. What I would argue with some of these things is that actually the lack of a single controlling mind, which is often criticised in this, is actually a, a virtuous thing in that it creates greater openness. You have different interests pulling at each other and that I think is one of the healthy things about the privatised system that people have to make the arguments in public and you can see what's going on in a way that I'm not sure you couldn't betrayal.
0: John let's talk a little bit more about investment then what about the overall level of spending on the railways what are your particular recollections and reflections on that has it been adequate is it adequate who's been investing the most?
4: You've got to appreciate that the railway industry itself is really capital-intensive and has a very long-term time horizon, and it does need substantial funding. And when it was a nationalised company, going back to the days of British Rail, it was starved of investment funding. The industry wanted more and couldn't get any from the civil servants from the government. There was a total lack of interest. But in spite of that, let's not forget that the East Coast Main Line was electrified under the state-owned company. They had a lot of development, investment into new trains. Don't forget the Pendolino train on the West Coast, the Tilting train. That was a British Rail idea from their research centre. They developed two or three prototypes, the, the APT train, the Advanced Passenger train, but it was just taken out of service almost as soon as the prototypes came online. They had some technical problems that could have been resolved, but the government decided to pull the plug and sold the patent for them. I think it ended up going to Fiat, the Italians, then Alstron. It was a big idea, it was a great idea, it was a world-spinning idea, and it was lost. They did have an excellent research centre on the electronics, the engineering side. They had the ideas there, they just couldn't get
3: the money to implement it. I was a useful train spotter when many of these things were about. I had a journey on the advanced passenger train on the West Coast Main Line. It was undoubtedly an exciting development, but I think we shouldn't forget the many failings of British Rail. I mean, this is an organisation that in 1955 came out with a modernisation plan that said that there was no foreseeable end to steam locomotives. They kept building steam locomotives, then they stopped building steam locomotives, and in 1968 they withdrew the last steam locomotive. This was an organisation that allowed the different regions to develop different kinds of diesel locomotives. I mean, it was a hugely inefficient way of modernising the railways with different technical fiefdoms growing up. It's tempting to look at some of the successes of later British Rail and conclude the nationalised railways were a success, and they did eventually get there a little bit, but there were some absolutely shocking wastes of public money along the way.
1: so I just bring us back to the present for a second? And I think what Robert says is interesting, but what you can see at the moment is that quite a lot of diversity is being pulled back by the government. There's a constant tension between what they feel could be done more advantageously at a central level and where they're prepared to go with lots of individual ideas. And you see that both with the ordering of these new intercity trains where the Department of Transport has essentially taken over the ordering and essentially is going to lease them on, in effect, to the operators, And you also see it in plans which Chris Grayling, the Transport Secretary, has just talked about to bring back together in some as yet unexplained way, track and train, in terms of reform to the franchise system. So the train operator will have more of an involvement in how the track is run.
0: Looking at the train operating companies and some of the poorly performing franchises, Jonathan, has the government done enough? Why has it not acted against some of the worst offenders?
1: Well I think there's a bit of a tension. I mean I think it's not fair to say that they haven't. They have obviously stripped people of franchises where they've performed completely unacceptably. And they have taken back if you like the keys from operators who've been unable to make their plans stick. I think that at the moment we have a situation on the East Coast main line where the operator is clearly unable to make the payments, the reverse subsidy payments if you like it's committed to and The government is essentially proposing to let them off and restructure the franchise so that basically it's not clear, of course, who will operate it when the existing franchise is truncated. But there's a reasonable chance that it might also be Virgin and Stagecoach who will run this. And people have asked, you know, hang on, is this not just a kind of complete bailout? And to some extent, it is. And I think that one of the tensions the government has is that they are worried that there is not enough competition. I mean, you've got competition is the ultimate thing that underpins the legitimacy, if you like, of the franchising system. And it is difficult for the government. It's very expensive to mount bids. So therefore the incumbents have a great advantage and basically the government finds that there really isn't that much competition around to work with. And I think it's something you come across a lot in privatised utilities, to be honest. There's the government worrying whether the private sector is enthusiastic enough about the rules and system it's created. And I think for various reasons, there is a sort of slight ebbing of enthusiasm. You know, obviously, as Jill has said, there's been the introduction of the European operators, many of whom have... Strategic reasons for getting involved, but in terms of the people who are doing this purely as a commercial venture, I think there's a sort of slight sense of weariness among some of them.
4: I think I would beg to differ with you on this particular point. The actual franchising system simply isn't working. You've mentioned the East Coast. Let's not forget that GNER could not cope with its second franchise on the line. It overbid. We had exactly the same problem. 18 months, two years later, with National Express, they bid. Couldn't cope. They couldn't meet the commitments. In fact, the former chief executive of GNER, Chris Garrett, he was actually saying that it's far better to overbid and win than underbid and lose. In other words, you had to go in high to bid, or you wouldn't have a chance of winning. And the penalties for underbidding will almost certainly mean you didn't get it. But if you did bid high and win, then you could walk away with minimal penalties. And that was really the underlying gaming processes that were involved. And the East Coast line really is not working again. We've seen very recently with Stagecoach Virgin, they bid very high indeed. And what people don't always realise, many of these bid premiums are backloaded. So in the early days of the franchise, you pay relatively low premiums and you don't pay the higher premiums till the latter part, when the going gets tougher for the train operator. Now, here we have the same example again. Three years or so into the contract, they realise they they've probably overbid. They were working on 9%, 10% compound growth in revenue every year. At the moment, they're getting probably about half that. They can't meet the targets. And it's a simple process where it doesn't hurt. It's far cheaper to lose the performance bond, which they have to lodge, rather than fulfilling the contract.
0: Finally then, given all that you've had to say about the problems that exist in the system... How can it be put right, John?
4: It's very difficult untangling all of this, but essentially the whole industry needs to be brought together again back as an integrated industry. It needs to be publicly accountable, and it's a public service for people.
0: John?
1: I'm more agnostic about the ownership issue. I think that what John describes is only achievable in the public sector. I don't think you can have a private monopoly monolith... Um, I think if you're going to preserve the system that we have in some form, I think there are two things. I think one is the legitimacy of the franchising system needs to be underpinned by holding people to realistic promises and having genuine penalties in place, which people believe in, for inadequate service. I also think that a key issue for me is within the system, the hybrid system that we have, how do we bring down costs? It strikes me that one of the problems with the railways is there is inadequate linkage between usage of the track and cost for the train operating companies. So they, to go back to something Robert said earlier, don't have enough of an incentive to encourage network rail to constrain its costs And I think that unless you find a way of solving that problem, and I think it's a quite difficult problem to solve, I think that we will continue with a system where there is quite a lot of waste of time and energy and money in the maintenance of the system.
0: And Robert, I'll give you the last word on this.
1: My
3: analysis would be a rather unpolitical one, I suppose. I would say that you need to do small things. I think the legacy of doing big things in railways is that the big things have often been destructive purely because they were big things. I think one needs to look closely at the structure of some of these contracts. I think the Department for Transport has been extremely careless and sloppy in the way it's put together some things. That's a huge part of the problem with Southern, for instance. They created an enormous unwieldy contract that was never going to work. I think one needs to get better expertise in the department for transport people who are better at managing these things and we need to work on getting better expertise in network rail at doing some of these investments so that the costs come down i think those are really the key things but in some ways i mean controversially we've all been saying everything's doom and gloom and i do think the franchising system has been tinkered with so many times it isn't a mess but um my experience as a regular train passenger is the system is actually working much better than it did some years ago and i don't think the system is the disaster that many people make it out to be
0: robert thank you very much my thanks also to jonathan and to jill and to john and thanks very much for listening we're going to take a look at private finance initiative contracts that have been used to fund big infrastructure projects like schools and hospitals in our next episode so look out for that on ft investigations which can be found on all the usual podcast apps